Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Do I have any junior high kids in the group? Hey! Nope, Josh is not junior high. Third service is when junior hires normally meet, but it's a family Sunday, so we're all here together. So a few of them showed up, which is nice. Um, Hey, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the the book of John, chapter 11, as we just read. But before we start, we're going to do a little bit of sort of background kind of groundwork to kind of give us a bigger picture of what's going on in this story. And um, one of the things, one of the reasons why we're doing this is because it's important for all believers to become uh, students of the word. And what I mean by that is that we need to to be a people who... uh, are equipped to a certain degree to search and study the scriptures with the dignity that they are the words of God, but with the understanding that they're approachable for everyone. When I was in high school, I was, uh, I played water polo at Fullerton High School, and um, did I just get a whoop? Nice. (laughs) It was like a very reserved whoop. Okay, Uh, I played at water polo there, and I I was on a club team uh, in my junior year, and we we're at a tournament, and when you're at tournaments in water polo, they're like, you play like two to three games a day, and you're there kind of all day long, and you get to watch the teams that you might play later, so you want to study and watch the teams. It's similar to how a football team would watch film or watch film of another team playing before they played them or afterwards to kind of learn and grow, but I remember I, I watched the, this team playing, and one of the players did a move that got him ejected, but it stopped the opposing team from scoring a goal, and I thought that was really interesting. It was kind of like a risk that he took, and my coach was standing there with me and he was talking to me about uh, how that person was a student of the game. And I, I thought that was really interesting. I, I, and we, as we were talking more about it, he said he knew that what he was doing uh, was going to be the right move to, to stop the team from scoring a goal, even if it hurt him. So he had studied the game enough to know that what he was going to do was going to have an effect, but the end result would be good for him. It's, it's this idea that the best player isn't always the person who is the strongest or fastest or smartest. It's the one who studies the game, the one who knows what it is. And we see that with coaches too. Like coaches for these uh, professional sports teams, they aren't always the best player, but they probably know the game better than anybody else. Those are what good coaches are. Great players don't always become good coaches. Great players might know how to play, um, but they don't always know the game that they play as well as some. So with that in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to study the word because as Christians, we're called to, to know the word of God that we, we profess to believe in. And what I want to do is, um, I think there's a sort of mystery around scripture sometimes how it's only certain people can really understand it or only certain people have the ability to, to glean the information that's there. And I would say that that's not true. The beauty of scripture is that you can scratch the surface and, inc- and obtain incredible insights or you can mine the depths and still find more. It's a never-ending well of information and insights we can pull from it, but it's not something that's so far off. You don't have to be a theologian, you don't have to be a literature professor or an English teacher to understand this, but you just need some tools to help you kind of start. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through uh, four questions as we approach this text that are going to help us form a better picture of what's happening here, and then we're going uh, to look at seven examples or seven observations of the text. So We'll get to that in a minute. But the first thing as we jump into this text for this morning, the first question as we jump into stories and narratives in the Bible that we want to address is, what is the setting? This is like basic middle school English. What is the setting? What's happening in the story? Where are we and where does this take place? Now, if you're like me, you've read passages in Scripture and the Bible and you've heard names that sound sound 
weird or locations that you have no concept of. And so you just kind of skim through them because it's like, I don't, know what they, I don't know what it means anyways, so let's just not like deal with it. I'll get to the good parts where Jesus is actually talking. Now, the reason why this is, this is important is because the biblical authors write very differently than uh, our more modern authors. So a modern author, uh, relatively modern compared to the b- biblical authors, would be someone like J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien can spend a chapter describing a tree. And for some people, that's like really gets them going. They love that. They want to know what the bark tastes like, smells like, all that stuff. And they love the way that he would describe it. And that's, mo- that's a very modern way of writing. If you can imagine that uh, originally these texts were passed down orally, you don't spend a lot of time talking about imagery. You spend a lot of time getting down to the nitty-gritty, the details of what are happening. So when things like geographical location and distance and physical descriptions of people or places, when those occur, it's like the author saying, these are really important. You should probably take note of this. And what we see in the text is that this takes place, this scene that we're, we're, we're watching right now in John chapter 11, and takes place in a town called Bethany. Now, you don't need to know exactly where Bethany is. You just need to know that it's about two miles away from Jerusalem. And that's what the author tells us. And the reason why that's important is because in the previous stories, every time Jesus has gone to Jerusalem, he usually finds himself in conflict with people. And a lot of times, those people he's in conflict with want to kill him. So going to Bethany, which is two miles near Jerusalem, is a dangerous move for Jesus. It brings him closer to proximity to those who want to cause him harm. It would be like Jesus hanging out in Yorba Linda at the far end, finding out someone needs him at Evie Free Fullerton and coming here, but knowing that people who want to kill him are hanging out at the Ralph's down the street. It's that close. It's 1.8 miles from here to Ralph's. I looked it up. You can trust me. Uh, it's about two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. So it's really close. It, wouldn't, it would take like maybe an hour for someone to know that Jesus was here, go down there and bring people back to kill Jesus if they really wanted to. So Jesus knows this. He knows that going to Jerusalem or going to Bethany brings him in close proximity to a, a dangerous place and dangerous people. That's a setting. That's where we're at here in this story. The next question we want to ask is who are the characters in this story? There are specific people that say things and do things, and those are all intentional, because what we know from the story from the book of John is that there were more than just the limited amount of characters that were named here, but the characters that are here are important, and John wants us to see them for a specific reason. Uh, So the characters, obviously, we got Jesus... Martha, Mary, Lazarus. There's a guy named Thomas who's one of the disciples. He doesn't often speak up in the, in the gospel, so it's important to maybe note that Thomas says something here. Um, and then we also have the chief priests and the Pharisees. Those are, those are recurring characters in the biblical story. And we also have a group that John calls the Jews. John typically identifies a group of people responding to Jesus as the Jews. They're a recurring sort of collection of people. They're not, it's not like the same 10 people. It could be a different people. But like there's a collective group that often interacts with Jesus, and they have one of two responses to what Jesus, Jesus is doing. And the two responses are they either believe in him or they get really mad and most likely try to kill him. So John is trying to tell you, not only is Jesus near a place that's very dangerous from him where people wanted to kill him, the people that are here, some of them are going to either respond and believing in him or want to kill him. So this is a dangerous move, just just from looking at the background, the story, all of this. The next thing we want to look at is where are we at in the entire story of the book of John? Whenever you read scripture, it's really important not to just read one section and try to pull meaning out of it, because that's how people take things out of context and get some sort of meaning that might not be the actual intention of the author. So it's really easy. You just read a story in its entirety. You try to figure out where does this fit along in the rest of the story that I know. It's really simple things to go about doing. So 
uh, John is this really brilliant, all the biblical authors are literary geniuses, and they do these things where they write in patterns and with tools that are meant to be signposts for us to pay attention, uh, and they're subtle, but they're also like, intel- like very crafty. It's, it's, it's beautiful. So John uh, writes in patterns of seven. Now, it doesn't make the number seven miraculous. It doesn't make it lucky, unfortunately. Seven is not anything magical, but he writes in patterns of seven, as a way of pointing his readers to some point of significance or point that he's trying to make. So he, said, he lists out seven names that Jesus uh, calls himself. There are seven miracles that he does. There are seven uh, statements that others make about him or seven ways people respond to him. So like, there's this pattern of sevens that John has in this book. And right now, depending on which theologian you read, we're at the sixth or the seventh. So some people believe that this is the sixth miracle and the seventh miracle that we're going to see is him raising himself from the dead. Other people think that the seventh miracle is this one and then later on the eighth one is going to be like this brand new one. So it doesn't really matter. All we need to know is that this is the last of the miracles that Jesus does for other people and it says something about himself and about what he can do and it foreshadows what he will do. So this is the sixth or seventh depending on how you read it. Um, and the next question we want to ask, where are we at in the story? So John is, this is an important moment. It's kind of capping off all of these miracles that Jesus has been doing. And so it's there as a signpost to say, this is a big deal, what Jesus is about to do and Jesus is about to say and what's happening here. The last question we want to ask as we study the text is what patterns do we see here, if any? So is there a pattern that we see of things happening previously in the story? Is the author using repetition this way as a means of pointing out something significant? So one of the things that's really quickly easy to see as a pattern is in all of these miracles, Jesus performs a sign or a miracle, and there are people who have a variety of opinions and, and reactions to what he does. So go back to the story of Jesus turning water into wine. Everybody loves it. It's a huge party. People are really happy. Everyone's really excited that Jesus did something awesome. I mean, he brought the party to the party, saved it. Okay. Then you go to a miracle like Jesus uh, healing a blind man and people are really angry. You have a few that believe in him, see how awesome it is. But that begins to be this moment where a lot of people really want to start killing Jesus. So there's a mixed emotions, mixed reactions to the things that Jesus is doing. In this story, you already know that the audience is going to be Jewish people who have a history of negative, a mixed bag of emotions. And we know that their reaction to what Jesus is doing is in line with people reacting negatively. They see what Jesus does and they hate him for it and they tell their people so that something can be done to stop him. So we have all of that sort of painting the picture of what's going on outside of this. And now we have the story. And uh, spoiler alert, Lazarus lives. I know, it's, it's a big surprise. Uh, the point of the story that we're going to talk about is uh, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through seven observations of the text. See, I didn't do this on purpose, but I figured it out last time that John loves sevens, and I accidentally maybe subconsciously came up with seven sort of observations. Uh, again, no magic. Don't get that tattooed on your arm. It's not going to do anything for you. So seven. Seven observations. And uh, the ones that I think are particularly important, I'll summarize at the end, but as you see each of these, it might feel like you're drinking from a fire hose right now. Like there's a lot of information, a lot of significance you could pull from either one of these points. Um, And if that's true, just kind of write that down or lock that in your memory and maybe explore that later. But we're going to go through seven of them and then I'll wrap up with maybe two or three that I think are pretty important for, for myself. That's why I share it with you. And also for us as a church. So 
With that said, I'm going to quickly summarize the story where we're at, just to refresh our memories. Uh, maybe you're like me, but someone reads a long passage of anything, and you, you follow along for three like lines, and then you just start like doing one of these. You can't focus on anything. So for those people who have a hard time following along when someone's reading out loud, I'm going to summarize the story again. I'm that person, so you're in good company. Here we go. In the story, here's where we, have, here's where we are. Jesus has just finished talking to Martha, and Martha has this great declaration of faith where she says, Lord, if you had been here, his life would have been saved. But I know that the resurrection is going to happen and Lazarus will live after that. And Jesus challenges that whole kind of thing and says, your brother will live because I am the resurrection and the life. After this conversation, Martha goes and gets her sister Mary, who's back at their home, who's like mourning and weeping with another group of people, the Jews, who are mourning and weeping with her. She says, the teacher is here and he wants to see you. So she runs as quickly as she can to go meet Jesus. And the mourners who are with her, this group of Jews who are, who are called the mourners in this segment, follow her because they think she's going towards the place where Lazarus is laid to mourn, with, to, to mourn again. So they're like, hey, she's going to go cry over there. Let's go cry over there. And she meets Jesus and Jesus uh, she has the same reaction as Martha. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus, in seeing Mary and seeing these mourners wailing and weeping at the thought, and, at the thought of their brother dying, is moved. He's troubled, the text says, and he weeps. We read this, that Jesus wept. If you're looking for a Bible verse to memorize, Jesus wept. You got it. So he weeps and he's moved and he says, take me to the place where you've laid him. So they take him to the tomb, and there's a stone over it, and Jesus says, take the stone and roll it away. And Martha speaks up. She says, hey, hey, it's going to smell real bad if you open up that tomb. Don't do that. And Jesus is like, didn't I tell you, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see God glorified? And so they roll the stone away, and Jesus prays to God, thanking him for who he is, that he hears him, and says, I'm saying this out loud so the other people will know that you are the one who's doing this, so that you are glorified in this. And then with a voice, he yells, Lazarus, come out. And he walks out. He's still in his grave clothes, these bandages around him, and he just walks out. And just like we talked about earlier, there are two reactions to Jesus. You have a group of people who are, they see the powerful and amazing work of Jesus and they respond by believing in him. And then you have a group of people who see the work and the power of Jesus and they respond by going to tell other people that something's happening and we need to deal with it. A group of Jews go down to Jerusalem, not very far off from where Jesus is in Bethany, and they tell the Pharisees and the chief priests, and the chief priests and the Pharisees gather together this council. And what we need to know about this council is this isn't just a group of people who are like, hey, let's figure this out. Like, these are the leaders of Israel. The chief priest Caiaphas, who is the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel, is there. And so this is like the decision that they arrive at is, is in every sense of the way a condemnation and a sentence to death for Jesus. This isn't like every other situation in which people get angry at Jesus and respond by wanting to kill him. It's like this emotional kind of like, ah, you can't say that, let's kill you. But this is like everyone like, this is premeditated, this is going to happen. And they pass along the message that anyone who sees Jesus later needs to tell us because we're going to kill him. It's the death sentence for him. And they're, they're frustrated and, and angry because they're worried that Jesus moving and working is going to cost them their nation their status potentially, it's going to cost them everything. And so they come up with a plan on how they're going to deal with it, and that's to kill Jesus. So that's where we are. That's, that's the story. That's what we just read earlier today. That's the story of Lazarus raising from the dead. It's, it's happy because someone comes back to life, but it's also incredibly sad 
because it's the start of Jesus's condemnation by other people. It's the official death sentence for Jesus. Now, as we go along through this text, we're going to go through seven, and I'll pause, and if you're taking notes maybe in your John journals or have a notebook with you, you can sort of maybe write these phrases out next to where they appear in the text. But the first thing I want you to, want you to, to notice is that Jesus going to Bethany is him acting out being the good shepherd. Jesus here is being the good shepherd. You can write that maybe at the top of verse 11 on your journal. Jesus is acting out being the good shepherd because he knows that going, close, that going to Bethany brings him close to people that are going to kill him. He knows that what he's going to do, his act of saving his friend, bringing him back to life, will cost him his life. Jesus in chapter 10 says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for Lazarus and ultimately will lay down his life for all of us. It's interesting at least to note that Jesus doesn't do this on account of how much Lazarus loved him. Jesus didn't say, Lazarus, you really were a good follower of me and then you got sick, so I guess I'll help you out. Jesus moves in response to his own love for Lazarus. And Jesus moves for us in the same way, to his response and love for us, not because of our love for him. This is important because sometimes we come to Jesus and we, we say, God, I've done all these things for you. I'm faithful. I go to church every Sunday. I'm a good person. I try not to swear very much. I don't flip my neighbors off when I drive past them that much. All these things, right? We say all these things about how we're such a good person, and then we say, but, and now will you in response do this? And that's not how our God works. That's a merit-based system, and that's not the God that we follow. The things that God does for us is only motivated by his love for his creation, nothing else. You cannot earn it because it's given to you freely. I think that's important for us to at least remember. God loves you, and that's why he works in our lives. The second point that I want us to notice is that... Uh, Mary responds with uh, what I would call a faith response, a response of faith. So it's easy, I think, to read this part of the text and say, well, Mary, she's angry, she's condemning Jesus for not coming quicker. Uh, But I think, and a few other people think this, I'm not the only one, but I, I think what's happening here is that Mary is expressing truth about Jesus amidst grief. So she is saying something profoundly true about Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, which is, in in essence, saying, Lord, you have the power to save life. You have the power to save life. And that's a beautiful thing that she expresses to Jesus in a moment of intense grief and pain. She could have said, Lord, why didn't you come here quicker? All these different things. But she she acknowledged a truth about God that was that was that she felt in that moment of deep pain and grieving. And I think if there's anything at least for us to take away from this, is that in seasons of grief and seasons of sorrow and trouble, an appropriate response, albeit not an easy one, is to acknowledge the truth of who God is while also acknowledging our own grief and our own pain. It doesn't make it necessarily okay. It's not the band-aid to fix pain and hurt, but the appropriate response is to say, Jesus, this is how I feel and I know who you are. The, second, the third point that I want you guys to see is that Jesus has emotions. Ba-ba-ba-ba! Emotions. So, Jesus weeps in this story. We read that he's troubled, he's angry. Some texts might say, deeply moved, some others might say. But the, the reason why this might be important is because Jesus is not sad that Lazarus is dead. The audience there says, see how much he loved Lazarus. That's why he's crying. And other people are like, well, if he really loved him, he could have gotten here sooner. 
If he could heal the blind man, why couldn't he heal Lazarus? And they, they kind of perceive Jesus' weeping and sorrow as him being sad that Lazarus is dead. And, and that's not the case. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, so why would he be sad that Lazarus has died? There's an element that maybe he is sad that death occurs at all. That's probably the more likely, that he's frustrated and angry and saddened and has filled with compassion for the people who have a misunderstanding of the life that he offers them, who are affected by the consequences of sin and death in their life, and that they have to grieve and mourn the way that they're grieving and mourning. Because he knows what he brings to them is life, and he knows what they live in and experience now is sin and death. And that is something that deeply troubles our God. That you and I, before knowing him, have to fear death. That death causes this in us. But now, on the other side of this, this isn't something we have to fear. It is sad, it is troubling, but it's not something that moves us to the great mourning that it does for these people. The mourning that the, the, the mourners are doing is, is uh, like wailing. And, uh, it's like... Um, it's like laying on the ground and screaming and yelling and pounding the earth. It's this deep, moving sort of like emotional response to something. But the morning that Jesus is doing is this internal kind of conflict. It's, it's a mixer of anger and compassion and sadness and frustration. And it's not the same as this outward wailing and crying. Jesus has emotions and he's sad that he's saddened by the fact that Death and sin have a hold of people's lives and it causes this chaos and destruction. He desires for his people to know freedom. The fourth point I want us to see today, when Jesus goes to the tomb, he does something that I think is is pretty interesting. He says, roll the stone away. Which, I don't know about you, but if I had the power to raise someone from the dead, I probably wouldn't ask someone to roll the stone away. I would like like zap Lazarus right in front of me. I might like do a hand gesture at one of these. I don't know. There's a lot of things he could have done. But it's really interesting to think that Jesus invited someone to participate with him in the work he was doing. He just said, hey, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. You move the stone away. And I think it speaks to an even bigger point that we see all throughout scripture is that God is a God who continually invites people into the work that he's doing. He is not dependent on us to do the work that he needs to get done. He doesn't need us to make things happen. We don't add power to him in order to do it, but he always invites people to work with him. In the book of Genesis, when God creates all of the living animals and creatures, and then he creates man, he brings all of them before Adam and says, you name them. He didn't have to do that. He could have brought them to Adam and said, this one's a duck, this one's a chicken. Like, he could have just told them what they were, but instead he invited Adam into the process and said, hey, you are going to be invited into what I am doing into this world. And if anything there is, if there's anything for us today, it's that God invites you and me into the things that he's doing in this world. And the question maybe for you to take home today is, what is God inviting you into? What is God inviting you into? doesn't mean that God maybe waits to do things until you do them, but it might mean that God's saying, I'm going to raise this person from the dead, but I need you to move the stone. I want you to move the stone. The fifth point that I want us to see today is that Jesus does what everyone thinks is impossible. Everyone in this story believes that what Jesus is What Jesus is there for, what Jesus can do in the past, he can't raise Lazarus from the dead. You see this because Martha uh, responds to Jesus when he says, roll the stone away. She says, God's going to stink. Don't do that. This is like the, the, oh, what's that movie called? The Bride? What's it called? The Mostly Dead? Princess, Princess Bride. 
Princess Bride. It's like he's not mostly dead in their eyes. He's all dead in their eyes. There's no possibility of him coming back to life at this point because he's been dead for four days. There's some Jewish tradition that, that talks about maybe something being like his soul, a soul of a person hovers above their body for three days until after they until they, after they die, and then on the fourth day, it just takes off, which may or may not be true, but what we do know is that in their eyes, there was no possibility of Lazarus coming back to life, which is because they've seen Jesus raise people back to life. There are two instances in the, pre- in the Gospels where Jesus has saved someone from death and raised them from life. They've seen it happen, but it's, it's when they're mostly dead in their eyes, not all dead. But Lazarus, he's, he's dead, dead. Like, he's not getting any deader. He's not getting more alive. There's, there's no way that Jesus can do this. And Jesus does what in their eyes is impossible. And for many of us, I would say, in our eyes, it's impossible to raise someone from the dead the way that Jesus did. And this is very important because how, what we believe Jesus is capable of and what's possible for him to do determines our response to that. And we'll circle back to that later, but I just want you to hold that in your minds, that what you believe Jesus is capable of doing affects what you do in response. The sixth point that I wanna, I'd like to make is that Jesus moves here in this, in this story for God's glory and not for his own. For God's glory. Um, earlier in one of the other Gospels in the book of Matthew, he says to his disciples, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we know this because he prays this prayer, not that he needed to pray it out loud in order for it to happen. There were sorcerers and spellcasters in, in that time period who would like mutter these weird incantations to like make things happen. Jesus just says it with a word, but he prays out loud so that other people know that it's the Father in heaven who's hearing him and doing this. God receives the glory in this moment. I think there's a, there's a lesson there, at least for us, to, to recognize and analyze the things that we do in our life for our glory or for the glory of God. For our glory or the glory of God. And these are subtle. Sometimes they're subconscious. They're not things we do intentionally, but maybe things we rationalize in our mind to present to the world as a thing that ultimately maybe does glorify God, but we also get some of that glory too. And I, I just think... If our Savior, if the Messiah that we follow wasn't about his own glory, then you and I cannot be about our own glory. Everybody in a position of leadership or authority or, or who does something that's like merit-based is in a position where they, they get to receive glory from themselves or direct it towards God. Now, it doesn't mean we do the Tim Tebow where like we score a touchdown and we go down like this, which is somewhat effective, but what it means is that we analyze what we do, and we look at the ways and we ask ourselves, are we doing this so that we receive praise and glory and honor, or is this ultimately for God? I think I shared a while ago about uh, my desire to be a doctor, and I had sort of wrapped up this idea that ultimately at the end of the day, God will be glorified because I'll be helping people, but along the way, I will receive praise and money and uh, all of these things from other people. I'll feel this deep sense of accomplishment and feel worth something because I can do all these things. And so it's like good motivation wrapped with bad motivation, and it's not all inherently wrong, but it's this like rationalization of this thing that would ultimately bring me glory and wasn't about the glory of God. And those are dangerous things to do. We're not called to be people who are about our own glory. We're called to seek God's glory over our own. And that's challenging to do. We have to analyze and look at every situation and say, God, would you remove the motivations of me that are sinful and desire for my name to be made great versus your name to be made great? The last uh, thing I want you to see is this really interesting interaction that happens with the chief priest and the Pharisees when they call this council together. The reason that they say they're worried, the 
reason that they say that they're worried is because uh, Jesus keeps doing all these things and Rome is going to come in and take away their place and their nation. So in their fear, they decide to, t- to enact a plan that will save them. What they don't know is that it's not going to work. But in their fear, they react. And I think they're, they're supposed to be the people of God pointing others to God. But what they're doing is they're trying to huddle together and say, how can we protect ourselves, protect what we have? They're trying to preserve their little slice of the world so that nothing bad happens to it. And that, church, is not how we're called to live. That is a fear that embodies the the way that they act and move and breathe, and that's not the way we're called to live. I think it's very easy for us to do that, especially in a Christian culture, to sort of get in this like fear circle where we're worried about this thing called the church being taken away from us or dying. And so we get other people and we say, come join our fear circle. We're all hide together over here. And that's not how we're called to live. We believe in that instance when we do those things that it's our responsibility to sustain the church, to sustain this thing that God has ordained. And in that very moment that we become people consumed by fear, we forget that the church is not ours, it's God's. He is the one who sustains it and not our own. And instead of reacting out of fear, we are called to react out of confidence and conviction with the hope that we have. We do not sustain this church. We do not sustain worship of God. God doesn't need us. God sustains us. And it's with that confidence and conviction we move forward. I have this cat. Her name is Lady. Lady Cat. I didn't name her. My sister named her and gave her to me. She's, she's terrified all the time. Like, she's this little ball of fear. She hides under our bed. She hides under our, like, sheets. She, like, only comes out at night when everyone else is asleep. She's really sweet sometimes, but she's just incredibly consumed by fear. And I think it's really easy for us to be like Lady Cat. We just, like, we try to hide and protect things that we believe are worth protecting, which is not to say we don't cling on to truths and defend them and hold them because they're, they, those things are valuable to do. But the second that we start believing it's our responsibility to do God's work, it's our responsibility to preserve the things of God, we forget that we are not the ones who, has the, who have the power to do anything. It's God who sustains, provides, and protects. We don't move out of fear. So, the, the last thing that I want to circle back to is this idea that God is the God of the impossible. And the reason why I think this is important is because um, what you believe Jesus is capable of doing determines what you do in response. So if I believe that Jesus is capable of healing someone, then I will pray for healing. But if I don't believe he's not capable of healing someone, I, I won't pray for healing. It's just something I, I write off immediately. That's, that's human nature. We, we look for and seek for and pursue things that we believe are possible most of us, some of us are dreamers and try to go do things. Anyways, it's not the point. But we pursue things that we believe are possible. We try to attain things that we believe are possible. Um, for me, uh, one of the things that this practically lays out in my life um, is something that I go back and forth between different states of, of believing it's possible and not believing it's possible. It's this work that I think God is doing in me. But I, I have this family member who does not know the Lord, who actually lives in outright rejection of the Lord and has deeply hurt everyone in my family. It's like constant pain, constant wounds, things that require counseling and therapy for like everyone in my family. It's just this deep pain. And there are these moments in which I believe, truly down, truly deep down believe that there is no hope for this person. And it's in those moments that I forget to pray for that person. I don't, I don't believe it's possible that God could grab this person's life and change them and, and grab a hold of them. And so I don't act in response to that. I think there are many situations and seasons where things we believe are impossible for God to do and so we don't ask him to do it. We don't go and try to do those things because we're like, well, God, God can't do this. 
We probably wouldn't say it out loud, but we might believe it unconsciously. And I feel like God is a God who continually surprises us and does things that we don't believe is possible. The Apostle Paul murdered Christians, murdered them. Even the, own, even the disciples had a hard time accepting him at first because they're like, wait, this guy? Don't you know? This could be a trap. This could be a trick. It's not possible that this guy could be sold out for Jesus. But he did. The God that we follow is a God of the impossible that can do even more than we could ever imagine. And so we need to be a people who recognize the limits of what we could conceive and the limitless things that God can do. We just say, God, I I trust that you can do even more than I could ever imagine. I will pray and ask for you to do this. I will move in response to this. So as we close today, there there are a few things I want you to take, take home with you. Not literal things, mental things. Put them in your mind. A few things I want you guys to take home with you in process. So the first is that uh, Jesus asks for us and invites us to do things with him. And so maybe for you to process is what is God calling you and inviting you to do? God has always been a God who invites his people to work with him. And for all of us, there are things God invites us to do. So what are the things God is inviting you to do? The second would be what are the ways in which you're motivated by fear to protect what you have rather than the trust and confidence knowing that God sustains all things? What what ways are you motivated by fear rather than confidence with expectation? And the last thing for you to process would be what do you believe is impossible for God to do? What do you, when you hear that question, what sparks in you, this is impossible for God to do? And what does that keep you from doing in response? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a great God who can do even more than we can imagine. You have the ability and the power to raise people from the dead, to move in impossible situations. God, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to that that we would be a people who move forward with confidence and trust rather than fear. In all things, God, we praise you. Amen.